Goldie and Bendy. Hello and welcome to the podcast they could not stop, Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art. I'm Valdemar Janusztak, art critic of the Sunday Times, although back in the day there was a Scottish artist called Ian Hamilton Finlay, who didn't like me very much. So he brought out a postcard which said, Valdemar Janusztak, within this thicket there lurks a name. And since that hurtful postcard, I'm happy to be known simply as Waldy. No longer a thicket, just a little clump. Now, of course, it isn't just me on this podcast. In the famous words of George Michael, I'm not planning on going solo. So I'm joined here by a Renaissance man who was born a millennium too late. He's everything. Art dealer, art historian, art restorer, farmer, TV guy, there's nothing he can't do. His given name is Bendor Grosvenor. But just as Leonardo di Serpiero da Vinci was known simply as Leonardo, and Michelangelo di Lodovico Buonarroti Simoni was known only as Michelangelo, so Bendor Grosvenor, the world's newest Renaissance man, is known simply as Bendy. Bendy. How's it going? Oh, very well, thanks. We snow thick on the ground here uh, today, Weldy. I'm in the attic. It's colder than ever. I have three jumpers on and the thermals. Uh, but you are always solo in my mind, and I am merely your tribute act, Weldy. I am the Boltraffio to your Leonardo da Vinci. Oh, you sweet man. I like the idea of all the snow up there. We're not getting any down here in London. We should do a thing about snow in art one day soon, shouldn't we, before it all melts? I mean, it's quite important. Um, I love the idea that snow, uh, you know, when it casts shadows uh, on snow, they're purple. I think that's a very jolly thought, don't you? Lovely. And in Scotland, we have, um, we have lovely purple lilac skies. It's a phenomenon I see frequently. Oh, lovely purple Scotland. Can't wait. Um, now, Bendy, we've got a stuffed podcast for you today, and later on we'll be continuing our brave search to find the worst movie about an artist ever made when we crunch the popcorn together and watch The Agony and the Ecstasy, starring Charlton Heston as Michelangelo. <laughs> and on the wall, Bendy, you've gone for something elegant, and I've gone for something big. Well, huge, in fact. And don't forget, it's all illustrated and annotated on the podcast pages at ZCZ Films. So on the wall, that's coming up. Uh, but first, as you know, the art world is always full of news. And where there's news, there's Waldy and Bendy. It's shocking news from the art world. Shocking news from the art world. Oh, Bendy. Um, now, I don't know if it's shocking, but it's certainly interesting that there's a new blue that's been discovered, a new colour. Now, we all know ultramarine blue, Prussian blue, phthalo blue. They've all been around for ages. But uh, scientists in America have finally created a new blue. It's the first new blue colour, they say, for 200 years. Um, it's called Yin-Min blue. Uh, and we're going to be talking about it in a minute. Uh, first, though, still staying in America, the big news of the week is that we've got a new president, haven't we, Bendy? Joseph Robinette Biden has taken his seat in the Oval Office. Um, now, I presume, Bendy, that there are art implications in this uh, arrival of the new president. 
Well, it's become a little tradition in itself, hasn't it? When a new president comes in, they, they change the art in the Oval Office. Biden, I'm also pleased to see, has taken away all those terrible military flags that Trump had put in. Um, and we've got portraits of Roosevelt, uh, Jefferson, Washington, of course, uh, busts of Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, uh, the Latino civil rights leader Cesar Chavez is behind Biden. And that's a very interesting pick. And I noticed a portrait of Benjamin Franklin by the French artist Duplessis has been put in place of Andrew Jackson. I think that's one of the key switches because we're told that it represents Biden's interest in science. Uh, but it's also quite a European portrait, isn't it? Uh, mm. Painted by a Frenchman, Benjamin Franklin, of course, US ambassador in Paris. And uh, we're, we're here in Britain. We're waiting with bated breath to see what Biden makes of us now that we're post-Brexit. And another crucial development in the Oval Office uh, is the removal of the bust of Winston Churchill. Yeah, that was a big move, wasn't it? And also the removal of the button that uh, Trump apparently had on his desk with which he would summon Diet Coke. You know, he used to drink lots of Diet Coke, nothing else. So he had a special <laughs> button installed on um, on the big desk and he'd press it and people would have to bring in Diet Coke. So that's been removed as well, apparently. And um, we're going to get see more, more tea and perhaps some nice coffee uh, in the Oval Office. I like that portrait of, um, of Benjamin Franklin by, by, by Duplessis. Um, it's it's the one that's on the hundred dollar bills, isn't it? It's the it's the same face that's um, that's, right. that's Benjamin Franklin. Yeah. Now I do know a bit about Duplessis. Uh, I came across him when I was doing my Rococo series. Not a lot, but um, but he was actually court painter to to Louis the Sixteenth, right? So he did these very uh, plush portraits of Louis the Sixteenth in all his robes and typical, you know, roi uh, de majesty sort of pictures, really over the top um, with a big wig and everything that was fashionable at the time. But that's not what this Benjamin Franklin's like, is it? I mean, he's really pared down. He's wearing a simple grey coat. He hasn't got a wig on. He's just got his normal hair. He's looking very stolid and plebeian. So, first of all, it proves that um, Duplessis was uh, was a, a very adaptable portrait painter, I think. Uh, but also that this sort of image of, of a typical American in the 1780s in Paris was very different from what the locals were doing. I mean, I think this, this Benjamin Franklin thing of being a, a pared down, simple, bluff man of the people, this seemed to represent something about the American spirit, if you like, which was being conveyed to, to the French. I think that's interesting. It's an interesting choice. It's good to get... Andrew Jackson out of there and replace him with Benjamin Franklin. And the science thing is interesting, of course, because not only does it uh, lead us to um, our thing coming up later on about the new blue that's been created in America, but I think, um, I mean, isn't it a political statement on its own that that Benjamin Franklin was interested in science and, you know, knowing what we know about what's happening in the world at the moment with the pandemic um, and the vaccines and the treatment of the whole situation by the Trump government, the, the positioning of a scientist on the wall, you know, that seems to be saying something about the world at the moment as well, doesn't it? How we've got to trust science, how Biden himself is siding, if you like, with the people who know. Do, do you get that? Absolutely. And of course, Benjamin Franklin, a great empiricist, uh, but, you know, we, we have to follow the path of truth and reason. Um, no, I think I think it's it's um, you know what a relief basically. <laughs> That's the main thing. What a relief that a sensible person is now behind the desk of the Oval Office. You mentioned the the bust of a workers' leader, Cesar Chavez. 
who um, has actually been stuck right behind the president, hasn't it? So any, yeah. any pictures of him at the Oval Office, he's going to be seeing this picture of Chavez as well. I don't yeah. think it's a very good bust. In fact, I think it's a terrible bust. Yeah. It's by an artist um, I've never heard of called Paul Suarez. But what I do know about Chavez is that he's the guy that coined that expression when, when, in one of his, he was a great supporter of farmers' rights, right? He started the Farmers' Workers' Union. And their great rallying cry, of course, he's a Latino, Mexican-American, so that chimes with the times as well. Cesar Chavez's rallying cry was, Si se puede, which I, I know is almost as bad a Spanish pronunciation as yours. But do you know what si se puedo means? I don't know. It means, yes, we can. Oh. So that was then borrowed by Barack Obama. So he just oh. translated it into English and used it again. Wow. Okay, anyway, that's enough. We will, know, we will know more about what's on in the Oval Office and, and more about the art um, as things unfold. But let me ask you another question. Did you see the inauguration, Bendy? I did indeed, yes. That lovely, uh, lovely speech and that amazing poem by Amanda Gorman. It was, all that was wonderful. But uh, did you happen to notice what um, Kamala Harris was wearing? Uh, pass. I wasn't that um, observant, sorry. Do you not remember what colour it was? Um, no. It was blue right but not not any old blue i mean it was a particularly bright and lovely blue outfit right which really stood out there and as i was watching it because i knew what we we're going to be talking about on this podcast i said to myself the words blimey waldy that looks exactly like yin min blue which is this new blue that's supposedly been discovered in america by professors and scientists working at oregon state university now in truth, right, so blue is a really difficult colour in art, right, as, as you know, and there aren't many types of it. The last major blue that was discovered was cobalt blue, which was, you know, what, 200 years ago. So it's a rare and difficult colour. But suddenly um, we hear that back, I think about 10 years ago, in Oregon State Universities, uh, so scientists were playing around in, in the lab, and they put together compounds of yttrium, indium oxide and manganese dioxide three things that they put into a test tube and they raised up the temperature to something massive in fahrenheit and when they all burnt see the head scientist was expecting this stuff to come out black as you would but it came out this bright blue this amazing blue that no one had seen before and this is this stuff they're now calling yin ming blue and the yin ming bit actually stands for yttrium indium and manganese so the stuff that goes into it um and it was a shade that was very specific. So it was like a bit like ultramarine blue, but incredibly bright, uh, just like Kamala Harris's dress, in fact, uh, at the inauguration. And it has other qualities, apparently. It, it covers uh, very, very profoundly with one coat. Um, it has some sort of cooling effect, too. It blocks out um, UV lights and, and heat and stuff. So it's this amazing new blue that's been discovered. Although it was discovered 10 years ago, it's taken a long time for it to get into production, as it were. But it's only in the last couple of months that they started to make oil paints with it. So how about that? Well, how interesting. Um, I look forward to, to seeing it in action on the canvas. It's always been something I've been uh, very interested in, in the history of art, is sort of turning the history of painting on its head and seeing it through uh, through the viewpoint of of paint because we we always uh, tend to think of the the advances in painting as um, you know various ex great man artists did this and changed the history of art forever but as often as not it was dependent entirely on a pigment invented as here by some clever person or shipped in from afar by a trader and and blue is actually a really interesting way to look at this this question in the history of art because as you as you mentioned the most uh, recent blue invented synthetic blue was um, in 1807 
a cobalt blue, and that replaced an earlier blue usually used in smalt form, uh, ultramarine, which was um, in turn based on lapis lazuli, which came from uh, Afghanistan. And it's so interesting to see the effect of that cobalt blue in 1807. It really transforms painting, um, particularly in the hands of, of Turner. You must have noticed that Turner throughout his career, he becomes brighter and bolder, of course, in his paints. And that reflects in part the various new pigments that, that he could get his hands on from the beginning of the 19th century. One of them is cobalt blue. We see it most famously in the fighting Temeraire. Um, those amazing blues in the sea and the sky, that's cobalt blue. And it's difficult to imagine Turner, the artist today, without the advantage of all those um, developments in pigments that we, that we know about. Uh, another really crucial one, of course, is the invention of watercolour in little blocks, which was first done in the 1780s in England by the Reeves brothers. And that, of course, allowed Turner to, to go out with his sketchbooks and capture light very quickly and simply with, with a watercolour kit. So could Turner have been the artist he was without developments like that? Well, the answer is no, isn't it? I mean, basically, he could not have been. Um, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll trump that, if, I, if you'll pardon the expression, um, with another fact, which is that, I mean, the Impressionists obviously came around at the same time as paint began to be available in tubes. Now, until then, artists, as you know, and if you've seen the agony and the ecstasy, which is coming up, there's little else going on except for the crushing of pigments and the making of new paints. You know, artists had to make their own paints and carry it around in these little bags, didn't they? But then they invented uh, tubes of oil paint. It was an American invention, actually, originally, the tube. Um, and the Impressionists took it up. The thing is, you cannot be an Impressionist, can you? You can't go out and paint the landscape with a little portable easel and be Van Gogh or any of those people unless you've got tubes of paint. So that changed the whole yeah. aesthetic at the time in the 19th century. And yeah. it's so right, Bendor. There are so many examples, aren't there, if you're looking back in the past, of how inventions or, or, or developments in colour change the history of art, really. That's what happened, isn't it? Yes. Another example is uh, is green. Emerald green comes in 1814. And the, the greatest indication of how that transforms art, particularly landscape painting, is if you imagine a, a landscape painting by Thomas Gainsborough, obviously there's a lot of green in it, but it's it's quite brown, earthy green. And as a result, he's forced to emphasize the effect of, of light, particularly uh, dusky landscapes so as the sun is setting. And compare that with a John Constable landscape from about 1814 and lush greens. And that's because mm -hmm. Constable could use emerald green. Uh, Gainsborough could not. He had, you had to mix green in those days from sort of yellows and browns. It became very difficult. And yeah. of course, another famous blue is, is what we see in, in Titian. Titian used uh, ultramarine, which, as I mentioned earlier, is based on lapis lazuli. That comes into Venice because Venice is a great trading seaport. Uh, that comes into Venice from the east. And ultramarine means a blue from beyond the seas. And uh, you, you could even argue that the invention of, of the, the Colore school of painting, you, obviously there's this great dispute in the, uh, the beginning of the uh, 16th century in Italy, the, the rival schools of Disegno in Rome, where they emphasized the importance of drawing and composition, and in Venice, the Colore school, where they emphasized just going for it on the canvas with color. Now, that basically comes about because Venice is is a trading place and has all these amazing colors come into it first and mm. um and the the other crucial thing finally is in venice of course being a watery place um you couldn't really paint on panel or fresco so you had to use what canvas mm. lots mm. of canvas about from 
uh, sailing ships. And canvas also invites a different way of painting. You sort of, you have to do battle with the canvas with your brush, don't you? Mm-hmm. And that's why you get these great big bold strokes. And, mm-hmm. and so I, I just think it's so interesting yeah. to see the history of art from, from the materials. Well, Venice, listen, not only, the, you're so right about the canvas because they couldn't do fresco because it all fell off, as we all know, fell off the walls. But the canvas, you see, the big thing about canvas is you could paint in a studio at home, couldn't you? So if you're not up, stuck up on the roof of a church painting a fresco, but you're at home in your studio, think about it. You can paint nudes, you can bring in different lighting, you can bring in all kinds of still life details, you can set up dramatic situations and create compositions, which is what Tintoretto did, isn't it? So it's a completely different way of making art, actually. You know, painting in the studio and then taking the picture and installing it on the roof of something like, you know, the Scuola di Carmine. But that's yeah. a very different process from what yeah. the Renaissance artists had to do when they were painting fresco. So it had a, an enormous impact. And of course, you're so right about the lapis lazuli blue that arrived in Venice. Not only um, was it fascinating that it kind of brought the spirit of the East with it, but I mean, they used it a lot. I mean, Bellini in particular, blue became the color of, of the Virgin Mary, didn't it? It had always had this slightly spiritual buzz to it. I mean, blue is the color of the sky, isn't it? I mean, it's got a mystical bent to it. Whatever you do to it, it feels a bit like that. And so when they started to paint the Virgin Mary, who is, of course, the queen of the heavens, and trying to evoke the atmosphere of the heavens, they used all that lapis lazuli, didn't they? And um, this beautiful ultramarine blue, which you get in the Titian paintings, which you get in so many Bellini Madonnas, where the the Virgin's dress is always blue. And um, I I noticed it most obviously, there's a fantastic Virgin Mary in the National Gallery by Sasa Ferrato. She's wearing almost a yin min blue dress. I mean, it just pops out at you, this glorious, difficult color blue. So, yeah, I mean, just in terms of the symbolism of it, let alone the impact on art history, but the impact on the symbolism of, of color in art. You know, blue is up there as a key thing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, that's paint. Uh, next week, let's do uh, paint drying. <laughs> uh, yeah, that would be good. <laughs> oh, one final thing, since we're on the subject right, of, of this, the White House, right? Why is the White House white? Um, now, is this going to be a QI klaxon moment? Am I thinking it's because the, the Brits burnt it in 1812 and they had to repaint it? Well, uh, no, no. Well, not quite. They did burn it, so they had to rebuild it. And when they rebuilt it, they rebuilt, rebuilt it in the neoclassical style, right? Yeah. So the neoclassical style, as the name tells you, is a new version of classical art. And it was developed in England. Uh, we all know that England was the place where Palladianism came along. And then we, we have vast areas of London at the time that were all white, weren't they? The Nash buildings, uh, Somerset House. You know, these places were built in the neoclassical style, which because they imagined Greece to have been, this monocolored sort of white, perfect civilization, neoclassicism had that look to it. The Capitol building is the same, isn't it? You know, mm. they, they have this attempt to look like a fantasy of, of Greek culture in its white perfection. Mm-hmm. But then more recently, uh, Winkelmann was the guy who uh, had done all this, had done all this research into how um, the classical world was white. But more recently, we've discovered that in fact, all the Greek temples were colored. They were heavily colored. All that's happened is the paint's fallen off. So the Acropolis, the Parthenon, was a bright, gaudy building. But the paint's fallen off and leaving behind only the white marble. And so this mistake, this huge cultural mistake about the architecture and the ambitions of the Greeks has been transferred through history aesthetically. And at various points, it's had enormous implications. 
So in neoclassical times, it created this kind of fantasy white architecture, which examples of, of neoclassicism all over Britain. And when it got to America, Benjamin Franklin was the great proponent of it, wasn't he? Um, it resulted in these white buildings. And so the Capitol building and the White House are neoclassical because of this big mistake they had about what Greek art was like. That's amazing. And I remember there's a story about the Parthenon marbles in the British Museum that they were cleaned, weren't they? Somebody found little original traces of what they thought was dirt on them and they decided to clean them off to make them whiter. But now we believe that that was original traces of paint. Yeah, don't get me going on that. I mean, they, they took the whole surface off the Parthenon marbles because of this fantasy about Greek sculpture. I mean, they, they literally de-skinned the Parthenon marbles to make them whiter, took off all the surface. There's one place, the Statue of Mars, if you're looking at the pediment, when you walk into the Duveen galleries, named after Joseph Duveen, who was the criminal in this case, the guy that ordered all this, Joseph Duveen ordered his guys to clean up the Parthenon marbles with this stuff called carborundum, which at the time was the second most powerful and hardest substance known to, to man after diamonds when it comes to cleaning substances. So they scrubbed the Parthenon marbles down with carborundum, and you can see one place where they were told to stop. Um, and it's the Statue of Mars, which is on the left of the pediment. So if you're going in and you've got the triangular pediment in the, in the Dravine Gallery, so if you go right far over to the left and look at the back of Mars, you can see a line which one side of it, you, they've taken about a millimetre off the surface of the statue, which has been cleaned in carborundum. And on the other side, they've left it as it was. And you see it darker, more sort of blobby and with more golden color rather than the the false white wow. so um yeah, i mean huge implications for for culture this whole fantasy of the white greek world mm. well we better stop there well, otherwise we'll have the wrath of the conservators on us again <laughs> y yes no, don't worry it wasn't me that did it ben and as far as i know it wasn't you either although that's <laughs> rare in your case because we all know where you stand on uh, on conservation um anyway so anyway, tubes of uh, yin min blue will be available soon an artist can use it um, and that's going to be interesting i wonder ben if yin min blue was around in the renaissance do you think michelangelo would have used it on the Sistine ceiling, hmm, I don't know. But we do know a whole lot of other things about the ceiling, and some of them may even be true, because you, Bendy, and I are on a quest to find the worst movie about an artist ever made. And this week's poor victim is Michelangelo. The Woody and Bendy Awards. Ah, the Woody and Bendy Awards. Art's most prestigious gong. Now, Bendy, we're trying to hand out the award to the worst film about an artist ever made. Uh, and this week, we've been looking at The Agony and the Ecstasy, famous film released in 1965. Uh, it was directed by Carol Reed and starring Charlton Heston as Michelangelo and Rex Harrison as the warrior pope Julius II. So what do you think of it, Bendy? I have to say, I really loved it. Um, I must have seen this film years ago. It was the sort of thing that uh, the BBC used to put on repeats in Saturday afternoons when I was a kid. And I hadn't seen it since then. And I, I really enjoyed this film. I loved it. I struggled to see how you would dislike it. We'll probably hear that you didn't like it at all. But I really loved it because the art was the star. It's, it started off, in fact, it starts off like a, uh, like a documentary, because you have about 15 minutes of just straight documentary with a voiceover, mm. looking at uh, Michelangelo's great sculptors and great works. And it's all about him. It's, it's a bit like an episode of Civilization, but with an American voice and not Kenneth Clark's. And then there's this extraordinary transition, which I think starts with a, a, a helicopter shot from the, um, 
St. Peter's Square in the Vatican. I don't know how they got permission for that. And you're waiting for this great build-up. You've had Michelangelo, the artist, you've seen his great works, and then you're expecting Michelangelo, the person. And at that moment, I thought with some trepidation, oh, here we go, we're going to get Hollywood uh, and Charlton Heston trying to be one of the greatest artists who ever lived. But even then, I thought Charlton Heston sort of pulled it off. I thought because, you know, Michelangelo was this, he, he must have been a sort of strong, rather rugged, um, semi-heroic figure to, you know, to wield his chisel over so much marble. And then it just gets better and better because there's wonderful dialogue. And of course, uh, the best thing in it, uh, Rex Harrison as Pope Julius II. Yes. Okay, listen, um, I, I liked it too. And I think it's infinitely better than the well, the one we did last week, Frida, with Selma Hayek, um, because it's got far more art in it. And there's some really good things about it, I agree with you. And that beginning, um, which is surprising isn't it i mean it is 15 minutes of pure art history about michelangelo's sculpture and all you see in it is the sculpture itself and this voice which i think is Charlton heston himself you know talking about what michelangelo did as a sculptor so it's a it's a little art history lesson all on its own and bendel you know you've filmed a lot of art i've filmed a lot of art it's incredibly well filmed this uh, this art at the beginning of that film i mean i've filmed some of those statues i filmed that the Battle of the Centaurs, which is this little artwork by him that's in the Casa Bonarotti in Florence. And I filmed the early Madonna of the Stairs. And I have to say, they look a lot better in this than they did in my film. <laughs> you know, they've obviously gone to town on lighting and yeah. really had great access and it's beautifully done. And that's largely true of, of, of the art in the film. Yeah, Charlton Heston, I think he does give a really good performance. I mean, the fact that he's six foot four and Michelangelo is five foot two, you only really notice it when you see him clambering over the <laughs> scaffold somewhat unconvincingly because it's several sizes too small for him. Rex Harrison of Julius II, I mean, brilliant performance. Uh, totally, totally misrepresentative of Julius II, of course. <laughs> and then when you see him at the beginning, you don't know it's him. He rides into the film in a suit of armour, slaying um, all these invading French and German soldiers with his big sword. I mean, none of that actually ever happened, of course. Julius II, although he was the warrior pope, um, he came at the back of the column, not the front, and he never did any fighting on his own. The, the performances are terrific. Um, a lot of the filming is really, really terrific. I really liked the seriousness with which art is presented here and the fact that it is basically a film about, about the creation of an artwork. I liked the, the dialogue was snappy. It was great. There, um, there's some fabulous sort of one-liners in it. Rex Harrison delivers most of them. I've written them all down for myself to cheer myself up. Uh, there's one bit where he shouts, I planned a ceiling, complaining to Michelangelo. He plans a miracle. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. You don't, you don't get that in the movies anymore. Some of them are really funny. There's a wonderful scene when he's talking to Raphael and he says, ah, yes, Raphael, I've seen your work. Show his promise. <laughs> I know, I it's, it's such a Hollywood idea of what creation is about. Now, so there's lots of good things about it, and it's fun to watch. And, and uh, I have one overwhelming, huge problem with it, is that, frankly, it's a load of balls. Um, <laughs> the actual thrust of the arguments here is completely misleading and wrong. Principally, this crazy idea that a pope, uh, any pope, let alone Julius II, you know, the warrior pope, would allow an artist to come along to the Vatican, to the most prestigious chapel in Christendom, to the epicenter of the Roman Catholic Church, and then just paint what he fancies on the ceiling, and then change it because he fancies changing it. 
is of course a complete nonsense. Um, as we all know about the Renaissance, the iconography of the Sistine ceiling would have been carefully planned, minutely discussed, precisely organized by this theological team that decided what should go up there. So Michelangelo may well have had a, a say in how it was organized and how to do the brushstrokes, etc. But he would have had no say at all in the iconography. So that scene where, he, where he's in Carrara and he goes up on a mountain and uh, he looks up at the sky <laughs> and all of a sudden the clouds start to form themselves yes. into the main shapes of the Sistine ceiling. <laughs> he doesn't have to invent it. Basically, he traces it from the clouds. Um, I'm afraid that, that scene was was a bit untrue. I think um, that was directed by Terry Gilliam from Monty Python that <laughs> bit, wasn't it? I was expecting a big foot to come down from the sky yeah. and squash everyone. But the Carrara sequences were great, don't you think? Yeah. I think there's so much good art history. I, I sort of am prepared to forgive it for being entirely wrong um, <laughs> from the compositional point of view. But I suppose we have to judge it against the standard of of films like Frida and what particularly what Hollywood was doing at the time. And this film came at a moment when these great religious movies were in vogue, things like The Robe and The Ten Commandments, often with Charlton Heston in them. And Hollywood it was suffused by faith, wasn't it? And I, I think actually that, in a way, is this film's saving grace because there's a sort of attempt at a love scene which doesn't get very far. And I think, and these days, if the, if the same story was filmed these days, goodness knows what they make of it and it would be all CGI to death. But coming back to the faith argument, it it all builds up to that, I thought, rather touching scene at the end when uh, Julius II, uh, ill, uh, near death, clambers up to the scaffold with Michelangelo, with his candle, to look at the, the finished fresco, and they're particularly discussing um, the creation of Adam by God. And, and they have this, for Hollywood, this great discussion about art and religion and and the Pope says, I wrote it down, he says, what you have painted there is not a portrait of God, it's a proof of faith. And there you have it, that's, that's the central goal of Western art history from the Middle Ages to about the 18th century, isn't it? Mm. Yes, I think, I think you're right. A lot of the scenes between Charlton Heston and, and Rex Harrison were really good, and the, the script was always um, on point, it was really cleverly done. I can't personally imagine Julius II clambering up 500 feet of scaffold um, to, to talk to Michelangelo underneath the Sistine ceiling, but um, there you go. I mentioned the Carrara marble sequences. So you come across Michelangelo in the famous marble quarries of Carrara, which actually are hundreds of miles away from Rome, although in this film they seem to be just down around the corner, right? Um, but the way that they were cutting the marble was really interesting. See, they must have done a lot of proper research on it. So they were using those huge saws, and those, you saw those people actually cutting the marble yeah. with those yeah. huge saws. And the way they were transporting it at the beginning, you know, with a, a team of, of about 60 or 70 oxen yeah. to move these massive lumps of, of marble down the hill, and how the men would sort of hang on with ropes to pull it. I mean, it was all terribly authentic and, and actually someone has done a lot of really interesting research there and done a, a good job if you're ever wondering how they managed to get all the marble out of the quarries and into Rome you know this is a very truthful um, version of how they did it perhaps another negative though Bendy um, the actual ceiling I mean there was, obviously they couldn't get access to the real Sistine ceiling when they were filming this so this was filmed in a studio lot at Cinecitta the famous Cinecitta uh, studios where Fellini did all his films so they rebuilt the Sistine Chapel there and obviously they just used a basically a giant photograph of the chapel as it was at the time um, to represent what Michelangelo was doing. 
And unfortunately, what they didn't factor into it was the fact that for 500 years, people have been lighting candles in there and starting <laughs> fires. And, and this whole, you know, the ceiling is completely black and ghastly, which is how it looks in the, in the movie. But we now know, because it's been restored, that actually it was very bright and cheerful and has all these opal fruit colours. So where you'd expect to see a bright and bouncy brand new Sistine ceiling, instead you get this shagged out grey bleak <laughs> one, which... Uh, is pretty misrepresentative, really, and that's the truth of it. But anyway, so I have some problems with it, but but I totally agree with you that it's a lot better than other things we've seen. So come the time when we get to the end of this marathon trawl through uh, art films about artists, this might figure with some decent points in it, I think. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm relatively optimistic. Yes, and if uh, listeners liked it, please let us know. I feel we may have to have another category of, of the best films about an artist, but... Um... Yeah. Uh, too early to say. We've got a lot of films to wade through. Yeah, we have. And this is, as we said, one of the better ones. What's coming next? I was thinking that the, a film that I'd like to talk about very much, and also because of my job in life is to, as it were, bring you up to date a bit more, Bendel, because you're stuck in the 17th and 18th centuries. <laughs> I thought um, I could have something a little bit more modern, although not fully modern. Um, and that's um, Pollock, which is the film about Jackson Pollock that Ed Harris starred in and directed. And it's another of these labours of love. I should do Jackson Pollock action painting. All right, good idea. Just before we leave Agony and Ecstasy behind, there was a moment I really loved that made me think of us. When the cardinals come in and see the finished fresco, and there's there's two cardinals who are standing at the bottom, uh, shouting Kenneth Williams-like about all the nudity and going, oh, blasphemy, it's awful, terrible stuff. And Michelangelo says to the Pope, why do you send these fools to judge me? <laughs> And, th- and that's us. The two cardinals, they're us. And we are the agony and the ecstasy of the old world. Well, you did look like one of them. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. We, well, we're, we're nothing if we're not two fools talking about art. In fact, we should name the podcast that. Rename it. <laughs> two fools talking about art. That's what we are. And the thing is, we've got more to talk about, foolishly, uh, because having done our Waldy and Bendy Award nomination for this week, we're going to go on to something more exciting, something more pleasing, perhaps. Something more obviously pleasing, at least. And that is a section where you get to choose what you would like to have hanging in your house during the great lockdown. And I get to choose what I would like to have built somewhere, in this case, around my house during the same great lockdown. On the wall. Oh, at last, on the wall, Bendy. This is the bit where we can relax a bit and just uh, just indulge our pleasure as two old fools talking about art without any complications. We're getting to choose things that we'd like to have during the great lockdown. What have you chosen? I'm surprised it's taken me this long to choose it, actually. It's my favourite painting, and it's by Sir Anthony van Dyck. It's in the Prado in Madrid, and the subject is his fellow artist, Martin Rickard. Uh, it's a three-quarter-length portrait on panel and it's in lovely condition because it's on panel all the colors work nothing is faded it's all it, it sparkles this painting um, and we see martin rick uh, sitting directly in front of us in a chair wrapped in a marvelous sort of dark blue furry robe and he's got a, a bright red tunic on underneath that uh, and a furry hat and he's looking at us very intensely and he's got very sad eyes and if you look at them really closely he's actually I think he's crying a bit, or, or he's on the verge of crying. And he's a, it's a very sad face. And, and I'm one of these people who I find sad music and sad pictures really um, uplifting. I, I don't know what it is about them. I, I find them sort of, they, they really please me. And 
the best thing about it, I think, and it's, it's the hand. We only see one hand, Martin Rickard's hand, it's, it's on the left of the painting, Rickard's right hand. It's gripping the arm of the chair very, very firmly. And Van Dyck, as I've said many times on this podcast, he painted hands wonderfully. And I think this is probably his best hand. And the thing about Martin Rickard is that he only had one arm. We don't know why he had one, one arm, whether it was an accident or, or uh, something from birth. But it's a painting of, of triumph over adversity. The, the fact that someone with only one arm from very humble beginnings could become the talented artist that Martin Rickard was. And I think that's why Van Dyck has emphasized the, the determination in that hand and the sadness in the artist's face. I, I could look at this picture for hours and hours and hours. I absolutely love it. Mm. Well, I'm glad he's an artist, uh, not a criminal. Um, if he was some kind of criminal, he'd be a, a one-armed bandit, wouldn't he? And that, <laughs> and that would destroy the mood totally, Bendor. Um, oh, no, there are people don't. out there who would, who would make that kind of joke about this picture. Um, they're an obnoxious <laughs> breed, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't have anything to do with them if I were you. Um, look, typical of you, another Van Dyke. I mean, you're basically you're on the walls. Are always Van Dyke if you can get it in. Um, but of course, it is a fantastic picture. Uh, I don't really know it that well. I, I've been to the Prado a lot. Um, I tend to look at the renaissance stuff more uh, and obviously the, the Spanish art. So I don't know it very well, but it is an amazing portrait. I think it, it, it's immediately clear that uh, Van Dyck and Ricker were, were friends because it's very intimate, isn't it? And has that look of, um, of a kind of genuine intimate knowledge of one artist of another about it. It breaks through the Colgate zone, doesn't it? It's dark and moody, in a Rembrandt-y mode almost. Um, it has that spiritual thing about it where if you place an artist in the darkness and he looks sad, it feels almost inevitably as if there's something going on between you and the sitter as well. Old guys looking out at you from the dark, they always get me going too, and that's got that, something of that about it. And yet he's dressed quite elaborately, isn't he? Again, in a Rembrandt-y fashion, he's got this rather ornate fur cloak on or fur coat edged with fur. Um, and, and he looks rather regal, as if he's meant to be some kind of ambassador or something. He doesn't look like a painter anyway. So it, it's got that, that thing that you get in, in Flemish art of the times and, and Dutch art of the times, which is a sense in which Rickart seems to be playing a role almost. It's a bit of a trony, isn't it? But I like it very much. And I didn't know that he was only one-armed until you pointed it out. What's brilliant here is that Van Dyck has made something so gentle out of that i mean i've i've made a stupid joke but van dyke doesn't Van dyke treats the hand that you do see as something powerful and and significant but but he sort of blurs the missing hand so you don't look at this picture and think, oh it's a one-armed bloke you don't notice it at all really and i didn't notice it till you mentioned it because it's very sensitively done and it's done with with great authority and skill it's a wonderful thing and i love also that flash of pink in the middle of this beautiful silk doublet he's wearing so out of all this darkness almost in the manner of William Dobson um, you have this brilliant flash of satin so it's a great picture um, next time I go to the Prado I'm going to look at it a lot more closely or, or I'm going to come up to your place and see it while it's over at your imaginary <laughs> on the wall more than welcome it's interesting you picked up about the role that Ricard is playing here uh, Van Dyck at this moment in what we call his second Antwerp period after he comes back from Italy and before he comes to England he decides to paint a lot of pictures of his fellow artists and he does a whole series of them and he becomes a sort of artist shop steward and, and no no artist has painted their fellow artists so 
brilliantly or extensively, I think. In fact, it would make a lovely exhibition. It's never really been picked up on. But Van Dyck, he never once paints them as artists. So he'd never go down the cliche road of them with with a paintbrush or, or you know, doing the art bit uh, he's always trying to elevate them and i presume himself and he does that fantastically well with martin Ricard here mm. you see we know him so well in england as a, as the painter of charles the first we know that side of him so well you know he's incredibly elegant cavaliers draped around these elegant country homes in britain you know wilton house and all that i think it's very easy to forget what a sensitive and soulful portraitist Van Dyke could be. I mean, you've never forgotten it because he's your favourite artist. But I mean, those of us at large who perhaps don't see as much of him as you do, I think it's easy to mistake him for a shallower talent than he was, if I would put it that way. I mean, he's known as the great flatterer, which he was. He made everybody look thin and elegant, but he could also do soulful and he did it really brilliantly. He's certainly doing it well in this particular picture. Good. Well, I'm glad we're converting you well then. Now, You've gone for something modest and intelligent, um, but this particular fool has gone for something very foolhardy. Now, you remember last week, we, we were talking to Anthony Gormley, which uh, a lot of people liked that interview, and I thought he came across so well, um, and it was really interesting. And one of the things he talked about was this thing called land art, which is a 1970s art movement that had its great moment in America, back in America again. And... I, as I pointed out last week, I've done the Land Art Trail a couple of times, and one of the greatest things I've seen, one of the best things that's ever happened to me, was driving into the Great Basin Desert in Utah to find a piece of land art called Sun Tunnels by Nancy Holt. It's this whopping great um, installation in the middle of the desert featuring four concrete tubes. Now that sounds deadly i imagine and people will be thinking what's he going on about concrete tubes in the desert sounds like litter someone's left behind but it's nothing like that in reality it feels like this stone hingey like monument that you suddenly come across in this great flatness of these uh, tubular shapes and as you get closer you realize that they're all aligned to different bits of geography so uh, the sun is visible in the middle of some of these tubes um, and I've been there at night as well, and you realise that the light comes down from the moon and that bathes them in a different kind of light. Um, they've got holes in them which actually throw, at night, if you shine a light through it, in the bright daytime, if the sun's shining and you go into one of these dark tubes, the holes in the roof are actually famous constellations of the stars. So it's like walking through Ursus Major or um, or the Great Dipper or, or the, the Little Bear, or you know, one of the famous Cassiope, one of the famous constellations with the lights magically in around you in the dark tube so it works at night it works in the day it's all aligned to this amazing landscape around it and the rising of the sun the setting of the sun and it's it's just a glorious uplifting exciting experience that reminds you of the bigness of nature and because i've been cooped up in my little london abode i mean you've been out with your snow plow you've been tending to the sheep You've been walking the mountains of Scotland and all the stuff that you're allowed to do up there. But I've been cooped up in my little London flat and I want to feel the fresh air. I want to feel the expanse. So I'm going to transport this large slab of the Great Basin Desert to my place in London with Nancy Holt's sun tunnels in the middle of it. We're going to trek out to the middle to find them and I'm going to sit there and feel great for the week ahead. That's my choice. 
Ah, well, perhaps in that part of London, you might instantly, I don't know how you keep the crowds away. Um, you'll have to put a fence up. But looking at the photos, just help me get a handle on the scale of those tubes. Can, can you actually walk in them? Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the height of Chot and Heston, so they're six foot six or something. They're bigger than that. They loom right over you. So they scale-wise, they're more Stonehenge than um, DIY stuff that you buy uh, at B&Q. Right. Oh, I'd, lo I'd love to see them. Um, and is there a sort of, in that enclosed space, do you get a sense of, um, does, the, does the sound change often? Is there an echo? Or I mean, if you're claustrophobic, or do you feel uh, liberated by, by the light? No, you feel mystical. That's what you feel. When I went, right, I mean, I've been twice, actually. First of all, remember, you've got to drive there. So you've got to get there. To get there is a five-hour journey across the desert, right? So... You know, like in in every film you've ever seen about um, Lawrence of Arabia or any film set in a desert, and, and the, the sort of thirsty man sees an oasis in the distance and a kind mm. of shimmering um, in a mirage, and they go, ah, oh, they crawl towards it with relief. It's a mm. bit like that. You've been driving for five hours across the desert, and then suddenly you see these little shapes, dark shapes, in the middle of the, the desert. Um, and at first I thought they were cows or something because they just look like blobs of darkness. And as you get closer and closer and closer, they turn into the sun tunnels. So they turn into these mm. monumental um, stretches of round tubes, if you like, that, that have been arranged in the desert. And they immediately you notice that they're, that, you know, they point four different directions. So they're like a giant compass, if you like, has been plonked down in the sand. And then you sort of explore them. And as you go into each one, I mean, I, I stayed the night, actually, when I went. And, and so, you know, you arrive in the evening and they're one set of things. Then you stay the night and you have a great time listening to the coyotes howling and all that. And then in the morning you get up and, and, and the sun's coming up right in the middle of them. So, so you look down a tunnel and there's the sun pointing straight at you. And the light plays games with them and all sorts of things happen. So you just get all poetic. That's what happens to you. You know, you know, like when you talk about Turner and your eyes get sort of misty and, and I can feel that your whole body is remembering the last time you stood on a rocky seashore and gazed out at the clouds and the sea, you know, that thunderous feeling. That's what you get there. Not, not about seashores and thunderous clouds, but, but about being in this kind of desert, this open space. It just gets you in the heart. You know, it's, it's that old Wordsworth idea of the sublime. You're hit by the sublime. And then you've got this five-hour journey back, you know. So you feel that you've earned your art. The art delivers. And um, it's just a great alternative to quotidian reality, to all this horrible day-to-day -day stuff we have to deal with. It's an escape, I guess. That's the truth of it. I can see why you need that big art hit. I think I need some big art hits. And, and standing uh, amongst some huge land art would probably deliver it. I've noticed um, just before we go, I, perhaps I shouldn't end on such a despairing note, but I feel after some months of lockdown now, I feel I'm missing museums more than ever. Um, standing in front of a masterpiece, I'm, I'm really missing it. And I realised the other day that I'm struggling to remember that sensation you get when you look at an extraordinary work of art. Now at home, I can put on a you know piece of Mozart or Bach or whatever, and, and I get that tingle of uh, creative brilliance washing over me when I hear it. But I can't do that with art. And I, and I feel like I'm losing the memory of all the amazing masterpieces I've seen. I, I really need to get out there. And I, I can see why um, having some in-your-face land art would help you reconnect with, with what we love so much. Mm. 
Well, you will be able to get out of it one day, Bendor. Um, unfortunately, it's not going to happen now. In the words of uh, Rex Harrison in uh, The Agony and the Ecstasy, when he turns to Michelangelo and says, when will you make an end? <laughs> and Michelangelo replies, when it's finished. Well, we too, Bendor, have reached that moment. <laughs> so it's goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. Woldy and Bendy!